0: This recording has been released into the public domain by the Bonson Institute, where we aim to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Hear God's word as we begin in the first chapter of the book of Philippians in the 12th verse. Paul says, Now I would have you know, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out, rather, unto the progress of the gospel, so that my bonds became manifest in Christ throughout the whole praetorian guard and to all the rest, and that most of the brethren in the Lord, being confident through my bonds, are more abundantly bold to speak the word of God without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of good will, The one do it of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. The other proclaim Christ the faction, not sincerely, thinking to raise up affliction for me in my bonds. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and therein I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out to my salvation through your supplication, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing shall I be put to shame, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But if to live in the flesh... If this shall bring fruit from my work, then what shall I choose? I know not. But I am in a strait betwixt the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for it is far better, yet to abide in the flesh is more needful for your sake. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide, yea, and abide with you all for your progress and joy in the faith that your glorying may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my presence with you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or be absent, I may hear of your state, that you stand fast in one spirit with one soul, striving for the faith of the gospel. And thus far the reading of God's word. Death helps to focus the mind. Death helps to focus the mind even of unbelievers who have lived their lives for themselves, lived their lives perhaps in quiet or maybe open defiance of God. When the time of death comes around, all of a sudden, the flippancy, the irreverence, the uh, lack of sober and serious Reflection on the meaning of life is gone, and the most defiant of people will be shown to be humbled in the presence of what the Bible calls the last enemy, the one which no one can avoid until the Lord returns. The last line from Dr. Van Til, with which I ended my recent book on his apologetical thought, speaks about those who are to perish in their sins and to perish in their rebellion. And in speaking of them, and I ended my book with these lines, I think they're very significant, Dr. Van Til says, with a profound pungency, they will seek in vain to die the death of the righteous. And in apologetics, we deal with people who are sometimes angry, sometimes very proud, Uh, argumentative, full of objections, people who think that they know the truth and that we don't. And so they challenge our faith. And in their arrogance, in their argument, in pursuing their project of trying to put down the truth of the gospel, they're proud to be unrighteous. But Dr. Van Til reminds us when all the arguments are over, when all of the words have been spoken and the lights have been turned out on the debate, even the unrighteous, will seek, but in vain, to die the death of the righteous. Death focuses the mind. It takes away all the nonsense, puts aside all the periphery, all the subordinate issues, and helps you to um, really think seriously about the meaning of life. And when the unrighteous think about death, though it will be in vain and too late and futile, they too will then wish that they could approach death as the righteous do. I want to praise God today that as we, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we face death, be it the imminent prospect of death, as I might face it on Tuesday with my surgery, or at whatever time the Lord may bring it to you in your life, the fact is that we don't approach death as unbelievers do. We have a different perspective on death, one that the world, in a sense, can't even fathom. Or if the world understands why we approach death in that way, it can only say, well, these poor deluded souls, you know, they have to comfort themselves with these words. Well, the imminent prospect of death tends to focus the mind not only of unbelievers, but of the Christian preacher as well. It makes um, the preacher serious and focused on what things matter most, reflecting on what matters most in life and in death. I think here of the... Um, Well, in our day and age, it would be overly dramatic, but nevertheless, a very powerful example of John Donne, the English poet. You will remember John Donne, I hope. Uh, He is one of the greatest of the metaphysical poets that Britain produced. Christian man, Christian preacher. He wrote, um, well, some lines that you will recognize. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee which was a reference to the funeral bells that would ring out across the English countryside when there was uh, someone being buried. And Dunn said, Don't, when you hear those bells, ask who has died. Because he said, you're part of humanity. Those bells are for you. Uh, very dramatic. A man who really understood the serious issues of life and faced death with a, a great somberness and righteous uh, trust in Christ as his Savior. When John Dunn was on his funeral, excuse me, on his deathbed, he made himself to church the last Sunday before he died, and he preached his last sermon in his funeral shroud. That is a way of making you remember. And so, um, I don't have anything quite so dramatic to share with you, obviously, but I want you to see that, as with John Donne, so with the Apostle Paul and myself this morning, Paul evidenced in Philippians chapter 1, while he was awaiting the outcome of his trial in Rome, that the facing of death tends to focus your mind on what matters most. And this week, um, all of you know, and I don't have to really emphasize too much, that um, the imminent prospect of death is mine as well. And I hope that uh, what I have to share with you this morning will be of some help spiritually as you reflect on Paul's attitude and Paul's outlook in Philippians 1. Maybe I'm preaching this for me to help me get my priorities in order as a follower of Christ, but I hope it will help you to see what is not only happening to me, but also happening to you all in the light which is both comforting and glorifying to our Savior. I really only have four points this morning. Now, for me, four points could be a two-hour sermon, I realize, but I don't have a lot of strength, but I have a lot of sincerity and desire to share with you. Four things, and I've purposely alliterated them so it would be easy for you to write them down if you're outlining them. In this text from Philippians, as we face the prospect of death, you notice first that Paul says, recognize the wisdom and the providence of God in hardships. Recognize the wisdom and the providence of God and hardships. Secondly, he says, remember the bottom line, the aim of all of our efforts. Thirdly, retain the highest value, regardless of the outcome for you. And fourthly, review the no-lose options. That's not Paul's language, but I think that captures what he's trying to tell us here. Review the no-lose options. Considering each one of these, in order, first, Paul tells us to recognize the wisdom and the providence of God in hardships. Verses 12, 13, and 14, Paul says, Now I would have you know, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the progress of the gospel. Now you have to understand this in historical setting. Paul's been imprisoned in Rome. He's been falsely accused. He probably has had his trial, and he's now awaiting the verdict and going to come out. And he's writing to the Philippians, one of his uh, favorite congregations, one that had always, you know, helped him in his faith and been an encouragement to him. And he writes to him, he says, But rather, these things have fallen out to the progress of the gospel. What is that word rather all about? They would expect, of course, that if Paul's being imprisoned, he's about to be condemned, perhaps to die, that the gospel is being threatened greatly. But Paul says, No, it doesn't work that way. Notice that God has a plan so that regardless of what happens to me, what is really taking place is furthering the gospel. He says, I want you to know this, that things are not so bad. I don't think it'd be very easy to write those things from a Roman prison. I don't think it'd be very easy to write those things cheerfully, knowing that you may be beheaded in just days. But Paul said, I don't want you to worry about this because it rather has to help the progress of the gospel. And How is that? He says, so that my bonds became manifest in Christ throughout the whole Praetorian Guard into all the rest. The Praetorian Guard was that unit in the Roman army that was in charge of prisoners, and the guard had to be chained to Paul day and night. And so he had constant changing of the guard. And what do you think? that was all about. is you think Paul just sat there and said, well, you know, how's the weather? You know, is UCLA's basketball team doing okay? He didn't talk about those sorts of things. He talked about Christ. And so then he gets another captive audience. Another guard comes in and is chained to him. And he witnesses to him. And eventually he says, and so my bonds have become manifest. The whole Praetorian Guard has heard about Christ. And this pri- this prisoner over here is not grumbling and complaining and trying to escape and do all the other sorts of things that prisoners do he's sitting there preaching the gospel to people and so he says this has not hurt the gospel it's sending it out and notice paul's not unmindful of this it's the praetorian guard you know he couldn't get any closer to caesar and so if he's not able to go right into the throne room you know and deal with the, the high command he's doing what he can for all of his lieutenants and so forth and he's spreading the word of christ so that throughout the Roman army, he says, all the rest now have heard of Christ. And not only this, not only has he had the opportunity to bring the gospel to a group that would never have listened to him under ordinary circumstances, Paul says, and that most of the brethren in the Lord, being confident through my bonds, are more abundantly bold to speak the word of God without fear. Paul has found that if God puts him in a situation where if you only measure things by that unit, what's happening to the apostle, it looks like the kingdom of God is really being set back. But Paul has found out that if he, under those circumstances, is a strong testimony to Christ, that what he does is he generates all kinds of other Christians to now pick up the slack and do what they should have been doing anyway, but to become bold in proclaiming Christ. They look at Paul and they say, well, then we're not going to be quiet. It doesn't look like the most noble of motives, but they're saying, for Paul's sake, we're not going to be quiet about this. We're going to tell others about Christ. And so Paul says, it isn't so bad, is it? When things happen which seem threatening to your life, to the life of the congregation, Paul says, recognize the wisdom and the providence of God in hardships. Now, I'm no Apostle Paul. No question about that. But I do hope that if my testimony to you today and throughout the ministry that I've had with you has any powerful effect by the Holy Spirit's working, that whether I'm with you or not, you're going to become more bold to be Christians who speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not concerned about the outcome, because I know that God has a plan that's going to incorporate what's best for me and for you, for the whole Church of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's confidence. In prison, facing death, Paul said, look at the wisdom and providence of God. Look what he's brought about through this. We wouldn't have planned it this way. We wouldn't have done it this way. But God knows what he's about. Secondly, Paul tells us to remember the bottom line, what the aim of all of our efforts should be. And the reason we have to remember the bottom line is because I think we get all confused in the calculation. That's the way most of us feel when we look at the IRS tax forms, right? Well, you got subtract this, what percentage of that, add in here, look at this chart, look at this table, go through this guy. Ca- I'm a fairly educated person. I know logic and so forth. And in many cases, I can see what's happening. But after a while, there's just so much spaghetti there. You say, okay, all I can do is go to the table and see what I'm supposed to send in, right? is finally look at the bottom line. The calculation becomes too confusing to you, but you know what you have to do to the bottom line. Paul says in the same way, the calculation about what's going on in life, what's valuable, what's not, what's good, what's bad, that gets too complicated, but he says you remember what the bottom line is. And this is illustrated, I think, in a fascinating way in verses 15 to 18. He's just said that because he has been bold in his testimony before the Praetorian guard, that other Christians are now bold to speak the word of God without fear. And then he says, well, of course, some indeed are preaching Christ out of envy and strife. Some, on the other hand, of goodwill. One are doing it of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel, but the other proclaim Christ the faction, not sincerely, thinking to raise up affliction for me in my bonds. Now, there's something being said here about human nature and even about those who profess to be Christians that is so ugly that I think many of us Christians just, we look at it and we turn aside and don't want to think this. We just can't imagine, can't imagine that there might be people who said they were Christians and they engaged in ministerial service for one purpose, and that is to increase the affliction that Paul would have in prison. Because they despised Paul because they were jealous of Paul, or they are angry with the message of Paul, or something about Paul has gotten under their skin. There are some people who are proclaiming Christ, and Paul says, there are many who do it sincerely, out of love for the Lord. That's fine. But he says there are some people who are doing this because they want to create a ruckus and keep the attention of the Roman high command on me and make it harder on me by what they're doing. Now, I've read Philippians a number of times, and so I know what the answer is. But artificially, if I could, hypothetically, just for a moment, if I had only read thus far and did not read on what Paul would say about this, I think I'd tell you what the right answer or the right response reply of a Christian would be to this. I think Paul would be praying for justice to be done to those wicked people out there who are trying to interrupt the work of the church and the progress of the kingdom and to bring affliction upon this innocent man. Sadly, I'm afraid that is um, a value that we all stick to, I do, and make it too high a value. Notice what Paul says. After saying that they're doing this to raise affliction for him and his bonds, he says, So what? Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether it's in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. When all is said and done, Paul said, I don't count. The injustice to me, the hurt, the pain, the unfairness, is not what's important. What's important is that even though they're not doing it in a way that's going to bring God's reward, because they're doing it pretense, and God knows their heart. God will take care of all that. Paul says, but you know what I rejoice in? That even though they hate me, they're proclaiming Christ. And if the word of Christ is getting out, then I'm going to rejoice in that. Not only does he say that he does rejoice, then he gives this affirmation, and I will rejoice. He sets his mind to this. He says, I don't care about all these other things. The bottom line is, the aim of all of our efforts is that Christ is made known. And so in the midst of his affliction, in the midst of his difficulties, Paul says we need to keep our focus on the bottom line. What is the aim of all of our efforts? Thirdly, he says retain the highest value in life, regardless of the outcome. No matter what happens, you've got to hold on to, maintain, retain that value that is of the highest worth, verses 19 and 20. For I know that this shall turn out to my salvation through your supplication and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing shall I be put to shame, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified. And now Paul doesn't use the expression that you might have expected, magnified by my preaching and teaching. Paul is very explicit. You really... You shouldn't miss this point. He says, and now his earnest expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified in his body. Paul was an educated man. Paul was a man of the world. He was a cosmopolitan soul. He'd been around. He knew the Roman ways. He knew exactly what was going to happen if he was condemned. He knew what would take place and the way in which he would be brutally murdered. And I believe that what he's saying is, so that if I live and I'm released, or whether they brutalize my body, Christ will be magnified in me. Not just in my testimony now, but actually in what I go through in terms of my bodily existence. He says that the most important thing is, whether it is in life or in death, that Christ should be magnified in this way, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing shall I be put to shame, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And if you jump down to verse 27, he fix this up again, he says, only let your manner of life, your lifestyle, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or be absent. That's a very delicate way of saying what? Whether I live to return to Philippi or whether I have to be absent from you. I may hear of your state that you stand fast in one spirit with one soul striving for the faith of the gospel. He said you do not gauge your Christian life. You do not respond just to the outward circumstances, be they favorable or unfavorable as you see things. He says regardless, Of the outcome. You stand fast and you strive for the gospel. Regardless of the motivation of those who are preaching about Christ, praise God that the truth of Christ is getting out. Whether in my body I live or I die, may the gospel of Jesus Christ be heard by men. Soren Kierkegaard, not one of my favorite philosophers, a Danish existentialist, did write some things which out of context I think are very helpful for us to remember. And I suppose the line that I most remember out of Kierkegaard is his definition of purity of heart. In fact, the title of one of his major works, Kierkegaard wrote, purity of heart is to will one thing. Those who are pure in heart are those who have one goal and they live for that, they die for that. There is nothing else, anything else that's in their life is subordinate to that one goal. Well, he got it from Paul, didn't he? As you can see, that's what Paul's proclaiming here. He says, whether they brutalize my body, whether they let me go. Whether people have good motives or bad motives, whether I'm able to come back to see you or whether I'm absent, Paul said there's but one thing that counts, and that's Christ. And it's in that context I hope that you can understand what is one of the best-known verses of the Bible. We come to point four. Review the no-lose options. Paul says, for to me, this is verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If purity of heart is to will one thing, and the one thing that Paul wanted was the glory of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel to be known by men, then you can understand why he would say, first of all, for me to live is Christ. I've already told you I'm no Apostle Paul, but I'd like to, for whatever it's worth to you, add my testimony as well. Life isn't worth living without Jesus Christ. Life would not be worth living no matter how much fame you had if you didn't know Christ. And life wouldn't be worth living no matter how much money you had if you didn't know Christ. And life wouldn't be worth living If you had great power and influence in this world, but didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. The history of the human race is filled with the annals, the anecdotes, on and on and on, of people who, you know, worked hard, worked hard, worked hard, and they died. And what was it all for? Back in the 1960s, the hippie culture, the counter-establishment culture that developed um, in those days was not anything for a Christian to be happy about, but there was a a kind of honesty about the um, anti-establishment ways of the hippies. The hippies looked at their parents and they said, what are you doing this for? You know, most of the hippies, you have to remember, were not lower class, uh, from lower class homes, middle and upper class homes. They had parents who were pretty well off, who were doing well, who were successful in many ways, powerful. They looked at their parents' lives and said, oh, how vain, how empty. So you get up early and you go to work and you work hard late and you come home and then you get up early and you work hard and you deposit your money and you pay for your big homes and your boats and so forth. But what's life? Of course, they went to the opposite extreme where there was no discipline and no, you know, striving and so forth. It was all, you know, live for today. You remember that? Sha'lala, la la we got to live for today, Right? And so they lived for the moment, and they wanted to get back to nature and all those sorts of things. Well, neither one of those are the biblical approach. But you see, there's something to that criticism of people who don't know what life is all about. Why are you working so hard? What difference does it make if you have fame and power? You know where the powerful and the weak, where the rich and the poor all meet together, according to the Bible? You know the one thing they have in common? They're buried. They're all buried, which is to say, to put it bluntly, they all die. And then at the end of the game, if you don't have any understanding of a life after death and what this life was all about, if you don't see that this was but a vestibule to eternity, a preparation for the longest of lives, the life that will never end, then this has been all vain, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, but what if tomorrow we die, then there's a new life that starts based on what we did in this life. Paul understood very well, and I do as well, that without Christ, life isn't worth living. Paul gave his testimony, his personal testimony, in one verse in the New Testament, in Galatians, the second chapter. And it was kind of an ironic and paradoxical way of speaking about his life, but he said, I'm crucified with Christ. That's my life. I've died in Christ. As he was crucified, so I am united to him in his crucifixion. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, Paul says, I live. I don't want you to think that I'm a walking zombie. I have a life, but my life is lost in Christ, the one who is crucified. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I don't know whether my life will be over in a couple of days or whether God will spare me and give me more time, but I can tell you this, I wish that I were able to say that with greater sincerity and accuracy, the way Paul could just say, I don't have a life anymore. My life is Christ's life. He lives through me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God, the only time in the New Testament where Paul says, who loved me, and gave himself for me. Everywhere else, Paul emphasizes the love of Christ for his people, for the church, for the elect, and so forth. This is the only place that you'll find in all of Paul's writings where he personalizes that and says, Christ loved me. Much of my professional career in um, teaching the Bible, being a theologian, and so forth, has been caught up in controversy. Part of that may be because I have a personality that's prone to controversy. Some people would like to just say, well, that's the problem. He likes to argue, okay? But I think that a good portion of the reason why there's controversy is that if you want to proclaim the gospel and you want to tell it without knocking the rough edges off, people aren't going to like what the Bible says. And one of the truths that has been very controversial throughout My life and my career is the truth that God has a people that he has chosen from all eternity to belong to him. And that long before my heart was changed so that I'd love the Savior, God had already set his love on me. And that's why I don't take any credit for being a Christian. I don't, this is not any pretense at all. I believe I'd be just as wicked as anybody else walking on the streets if God had not changed my heart. Dead men can't do anything for themselves, and I was spiritually dead. And so, as the Bible says, we love him because he first loved us. When Paul says that for him to live is Christ, he's giving testimony to that fact that he has nothing to offer of himself and that he lives for Christ because Christ gave himself for him. I'm not being polemical, I don't want to get into theological dispute this morning, but I'm going to tell you, I praise God that I don't believe in Arminian gospel. I praise God that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die for the mass of humanity without concern for individuals. I praise God, somehow, in his wondrous grace, that when Jesus died on the cross, he knew my name. And yours. And Paul could say that. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so to live, to live as Christ. That was his testimony. And death was no longer an enemy to be feared. By. And death was no longer an enemy to be feared by Paul. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know how, apart from Christian view of the world and human life and what's going to happen after we die, anybody could say that. Paul was happy to live because for him, everything he did was oriented toward Jesus Christ living through him. But he also knew that if the Lord, in his providence and wisdom, should decide to take him, Paul said, how much better? Can there be any doubt in anybody's mind about that? So much better. Well, there are things that humanly, in terms of this life, in our temporal horizon, I have to tell you, it's hard for me to fathom. I don't know, if I were to die, how I could bear to be without my family. And I don't say this just because you all have been so kind to me. I don't know how I could bear to be without my congregation. But I also know that there is an understanding and a depth that goes beyond what we're able to see right now, and that it will be far better. I mean, it seems like I would be lonely, right? I mean, think about that. How could I be lonely if I was in the presence of the one who gave his life for me, who knew me from all eternity, Who was the one who picked me up every time I fell, who comforted me every time my heart was broken. I'm going to live with Jesus. And obviously, as Paul says, it's far better. So much so, and it's wrong, dead wrong, but I, I have to tell you, some Christians have seen this as an encouragement to actually resign themselves to death, maybe even pursue death, and do foolish things in hopes that you would die, because it is far better to be with the Lord. Well, that isn't, as you read on, you see that isn't the way we're supposed to re- respond to the truth, that it's better to die. But it is true that it is better to die. And so how do I look upon my situation? Well, I don't know what will happen Tuesday. I do want this to be true, that if I live, that I'll live more for Jesus. Then he'll give me that time so that the testimony that I want to have will become more true and more real in my life. But I also have that resignation that I think is appropriate. If God in his wisdom decides that this should be the end of my life, I know that I will be much better. I won't struggle with sin anymore. And um, I won't worry about the things that I can't figure out in this life. Because then everything will be peace. I don't think it will be inactivity, I don't think it will be dull and boring, but I think everything will be wonderful. And uh, the Bible says, God will wipe every tear out of my eyes. How could I not look forward to that? I don't look forward to missing my loved ones, but I do look forward to being with the one who has loved me more than any human being could. So death is no longer an enemy to be feared. That isn't the end of what Paul says, because he continues now, having indicated the no-lose options. He says, but it's not for him to choose. So once again, he returns to the providence and the sovereignty of God. It's all in God's hands. Verse 22, but if to live in the flesh, if this shall bring fruit from my work, then what I shall choose, I don't know. Paul says, how could I long to be with Jesus for my own selfish purposes if God has intended that my ministry bring greater fruit? And so I'm in a strait betwixt the two, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for it is far better. And yet to abide in the flesh, listen to this, is more needful for your sake. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide, yes, and abide with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, that your glory may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my presence with you again. And so Paul doesn't then just give up and say, okay, I'm going to die because it's better. What he says is, I realize that if God wants to continue my life, it's because I have a ministry for you all, and it will bring greater fruit for your faith. And so if it's more needful for you that I be alive then God will choose that. And then again in verse 27, he says, but whether I'm absent or whether I'm uh, with you, remember what the final you know, end and goal should be. The, messi- the message here is that the head of the church is going to provide for all of its needs. And so I'm not going to stop any more than the Apostle Paul did and try to figure out for you whether I'm going to live or die. That's not my place but I know that God is going to do what's best for me and for you. Last Sunday afternoon, I did something that was, I think, very needful and was a blessing for our family, but a very hard thing to do, and I spent a couple of hours talking to my sons about the prospect of my death, you know, getting my affairs in order, the care for my family, my finances, my legal, you know... uh, documents and those sorts of things. You just have to do that, don't you? And I feel that I should take a few moments uh, with my other family, my church family, and say a few things to you as well. It may be that God has decided that my life should be sustained and I'll be able to keep preaching to you, but none of us should be presumptuous because it's in the hands of God, and I shouldn't be so presumptuous to say, okay, I'm just going to leave you without any kind of guidance because, hey, I'll be back in a few weeks and I'll tell you about it then. So, if you don't mind, before we end this morning, I'd like to just speak from the heart to you all about our congregation. And I have to say something, which because so many of you love me, you're not going to want me to say, but I have to say it because it's true. You don't need me. I'd really be happy to say the opposite. I mean, it would give me great joy to say, oh, no, they're so desperate, they've got to have me. But you don't. You do not need me. How do I know that? Well, because God accomplishes his purposes through children, through rocks, through donkeys. through Balaam's ass? Now, I don't think God's going to send you a donkey for a preacher. hope not. But we have to remember God is all sufficient. God and his program don't rely on any individual no matter how highly you may think of me, and I thank you for that, and you're very gracious, you don't know, but you continue to hold me in high esteem, and I appreciate that, and I love you for it, but you don't need me. Who do you need? Well, what's this lesson been all about? What is the bottom line? What's the one value in life? What is purity of heart all about? You need to submit to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he chooses to take your preacher away, he's not going to do that without having a better plan for you. But we believe that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And though you may miss me, and I'll be happy to know that you do, I don't want you, any of you to despair that somehow in our congregations in trouble you're not. You're in the hands of the one who sees the end from the beginning and has a great plan for you. The second thing I'd like to share with my church family, just in case I don't get an opportunity later, is that not only do you not need me per se, but I think it's very important that you not ever allow this congregation to have the reputation or in reality to live as though you came to this church for my sake. And so you keep coming. Keep going to Bible study. Keep performing your works of service and love toward one another, because the life of this congregation is not the life of the preacher. You know that, don't you? Paul is taught that there's a body of Christ here, and that God has given gifts to all of you to serve one another. He's given me a gift to serve you. But if I'm taken out of the way, that doesn't mean the other gifts no longer function. And so here's an exhortation in this point also to many of you who, I love each and every one of you, I think it's wonderful that you're here, but I also recognize that some of our friends here are kind of on the periphery of what's going on in our congregation, others are at the very heart of things. My heart's desire would be that there'd be no peripheral members of our congregation, that all of you would exercise your gifts that you would be active in the life of the congregation, to serve one another. Service isn't always defined by the limelight. Service isn't always defined by what is visible to people. I think the greatest service that we offer is often that very quiet quiet washing of feet that no one ever knows about. But you need to love one another and to serve one another and to ask, what is it I should be contributing to this congregation so that its life is fuller and more glorifying to the Lord? So would you do that for me? Would you remember that this congregation will indeed carry on, that it does not need any particular preacher, and that you all need each other. You need to serve each other. Humbly, quietly, consistently serve each other. Thirdly, I would ask you, if I'm not here to see you get officers, This is not just, you know, my Presbyterianism rising up. I, from the heart, believe that you need to continue to develop the infrastructure of this group. You need deacons. You need elders. Now, the men that I have begun to train in that direction may not be your choice. And I'm not saying that because I think that you really, but I'm not here to campaign for them either. That finally is your decision. But if it's not them, don't stop until you have the officers you need. Remember that your session, be it far away, all the way down to Chula Vista, does love you and prays for you daily, and that uh, there's no reason for this congregation to just become amorphous and to kind of, you know, float apart, disintegrate. So submit to your rulers, to those who are your session presently, and also to those who are being developed in your midst to serve you as well. It's important that we be Presbyterians. Why? Because Jesus is head of the church. And Jesus rules his church in the way that he has said in the Scripture. And those congregations which have for years now said, Oh, it's no big deal. Well, listen, none of us have the right to say to Jesus, What you have taught us is no big deal. And so I don't push this so much normally, but since I have some final words here, I want to tell you, be good Presbyterians. And finally... When you are taught in the future, please do me the great favor of never, ever referring to me by name and saying, but, Dr. Bonson said, please don't ever do that, because the greatest legacy I could have in developing a congregation, well, one great one is that you continue even after I'm gone, but that you continue by saying everything is tested by this. You may not agree with every interpretation I've given you, every theological doctrine that I've taught you. You may not say the same thing that I would, but I hope that I've left this with you, if nothing else, that you'll test everything by the only infallible standard God has given us. And that's the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And so the head of the church is going to provide for your needs, and he's going to provide for my needs. I thank you very much for your prayers. And I do hope that um, God will grant you the desire of your heart and mine as well. But I don't know what's going to turn out. I told you in Thanksgiving that my testimony is the same as that of Jim Elliot, who before he went to the uh, Aka Indians and was killed, wrote in his diary, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. One of my favorite hymns It was written in 1675 by Samuel Rodica. And I'd like to close by reading it for you. Whatever my God ordains is right. Holy his will abides. I will be still whatever he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn. I take it all in shrinking. My God is true. Each morning new, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me, that I shall not fall. And so to him, I'll leave it all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would increase that faith in me and in all those who are here to Listen to your word this day, that you would increase in us all a greater fervency and sincerity in the testimony that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Will you look to you and your sovereign wisdom and your providence to so order our affairs individually and congregationally that all things will work together for good. Lord, help us to love you more fervently, more purely, more singularly. Help us to realize that you are the one value worth holding on to in life and in death, so that whether we live or die, it should be magnified in our body and manifest in our words that you are the Savior. Here we pray in your precious name. Amen. This recording has been released into the public domain by the Bonson Institute. Duplication, sharing, and distribution is encouraged. For more information about the life and ministry of Dr. Greg L. Bonson, visit our website, bonsoninstitute.com, where we aim to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ.